cousins. You're gonna, you'll feel it. Trust me. And again, you know, I, I know people have their allegiances. Though you don't have to be a 49er fan, you don't even have to be an NFL fan. You this this will resonate with you. Trust. There you have it, Juan Amador. Yeah. You gotta say Juan Amador. When you say it, you right. gotta hold your hand out and yeah. say it like Juan Amador. Yeah, you shout, know. Shout out to my dude from Democracy <laughs> Now, but you know. We're gonna take a break on Hard Knock Radio. You're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the 29th Annual Cascade Festival of African Films from Friday, February 1st through Saturday, March 2nd. The Cascade Festival of African Films represent different countries and cultures and a range of lifestyles from pre-colonial to modern times, including both rural and urban settings. Films include Razia, a film from Morocco, and more at the Hollywood Theater, and Wale from Burkina Faso, Fig Tree from Ethiopia, shorts from emerging African filmmakers, and many more at the Moriarty Arts and Humanities Building, Room 104, at the PCC Cascade Campus, 705 North Killingsworth Street in Portland. Again, that's the 29th Annual Cascade Festival of African Films from Friday, February 1st through Saturday, March 2nd. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. We continue our ongoing coverage of the U.S.-backed attempted coup now underway in oil-rich Venezuela. We speak to the Barbados ambassador to CARICOM, um, the organization representing Caribbean nations, about CARICOM's objections to the U.S. moves on Venezuela and about the CARICOM countries who are standing with the U.S. position. Our guest is Barbados-based David Comision. And we contrast the U.S. regime change playbook as it was implemented in Haiti, Honduras, and twice in Venezuela. We speak to Kevin Pina, journalist and Haiti expert. For our campaigners for Black Lives series, we speak with Evan Bunch of Dignity and Power Now about the latest controversy around the findings that LAPD illegally stopped black drivers, that is the Los Angeles Police Department. Also, our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Congressional negotiators get to work today trying to hammer out a funding bill whose centerpiece will be further border security measures, which critics dub border militarization. President Trump has threatened to trigger another shutdown if negotiators don't come up with a plan acceptable to him by the February 15th deadline when current spending authorization runs out. Senate Democratic Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said that left to their own devices, he's confident Democrats and Republican lawmakers can come up with a deal. We've come to big agreements before, for example, on budgets and Russian sanctions. What was the common theme? When the president stays out of the negotiations, we almost always succeed. When he mixes in, it's a formula for failure. So I'd ask President Trump, let Congress deal with it on its own. Trump showed no inclination to stay out of the mix. He tweeted this morning that the Republican and Democratic negotiators would be wasting their time if they aren't discussing or contemplating a wall or physical barrier. Republicans are showing little appetite for another shutdown. Maine Senator Susan Collins said those who thought that shutdowns were a good idea have been disabused. The heads of U.S. intelligence agencies directly contradicted President Donald Trump on several fronts. 
The director of national intelligence, head of the CIA and FBI director delivered a congressional briefing. They told Congress that North Korea is unlikely to dismantle its nuclear arsenal, that the Islamic State group remains a threat, and that the Iran nuclear deal is working. The chiefs also made no mention of a crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, which Trump has cited in arguing for his expanded border wall. A deadly Arctic deep freeze enveloped the Midwest with record low temperatures. The sub-zero freeze triggered widespread closures of schools, universities, and businesses, canceled flights, and prompted the Postal Service to take the rare step of suspending mail delivery to a wide swath of the region. Officials throughout the area were focused on protecting vulnerable people from the cold, including the homeless, seniors, and those living in substandard housing. Some buses were turned into mobile warming shelters to help the homeless in Chicago, where temperatures plunged to minus 19 degrees. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzer issued a disaster proclamation for the entire state. I'm urging every Illinoisan to take this weather very seriously. These conditions are and can be life-threatening. Even short periods of exposure to this type of weather can be dangerous. The governors of Wisconsin and Michigan also declared emergencies. The bitter cold is the result of a split in the polar vortex, which normally hovers above the North Pole. That split is believed to be due to climate disruption caused by global warming. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro huddled with his military ahead of yet another anti-government protest scheduled for today. At the same time, Maduro said he's willing to negotiate with the country's opposition for the sake of peace and the country's future. Maduro said talks could be held with the mediation of other countries. At the United Nations, the Venezuelan ambassador said the Trump administration has no moral high ground when it comes to the situation in Venezuela. What does this government want? This government that doesn't recognize treaty, that doesn't recognize any of the agreements made around Iran and signed by various European countries, that launches a trade war with China, that threatens Russia with a nuclear war, that attacks in a very sadistic manner migrants from Central America who arrive there, that has built a wall, a criminal wall, that sequesters children to make them suffer, children of migrants, and this government, this U.S. government, would have any moral authority to impose any diktat on Venezuela? The Venezuelan government has barred National Assembly President Juan Guaido from leaving the country while he's investigated for anti-government activities. The government also froze his bank accounts. Guaido declared himself Venezuela's interim president, a move immediately backed by the U.S. and nearly two dozen other countries. Democrats have selected former Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams to deliver the Democratic response to President Trump's State of the Union address next Tuesday evening. Abrams marshaled the power of black women voters but narrowly lost the Georgia governor's race after voter suppression efforts. Her address will be a counterpoint to Trump, who has a habit of derogatory comments against black women. He has, for instance, repeatedly called Los Angeles Congresswoman Maxine Waters low IQ. California Attorney General Javier Becerra will deliver the Spanish-language response to the State of the Union. Becerra has become litigator-in-chief, filing and participating in dozens of lawsuits challenging Trump administration policies on immigration, health care, and the environment. I'm Eileen Alfandari. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we're continuing our coverage of the U.S.-backed attempted coup now going on in Venezuela. Uh, some of the latest news, the U.S. has certified the authority of the Venezuelan opposition leader, Juan Guaido, to con control certain assets held by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for Venezuela or any other U.S. insured banks. Uh, and that was announced on Tuesday, January 29th. The measure totals, we are told, $7 billion in assets blocked, plus $11 billion in lost export proceeds over the next year. You also know, if you've been following our coverage, um, that the Trump administration has slapped uh, sanctions on PDVSA. Um, the oil company, Venezuela's 
oil company. And last week, the Bank of England denied Nicolas Maduro, the elected president of Venezuela, permission to withdraw more than a billion dollars in gold that belongs to Venezuela and is being held in the Bank of England. And the UK is saying that they no longer recognize Nicolas Maduro as the country's head of state. And uh, all of the money that is basically being held or one could say stolen uh, from Venezuela right now, we are being told that that will be funneled uh, to uh, Guaido, who announced himself last week as president of Venezuela, even though he was not elected president of Venezuela. Now, Russia is criticizing the U.S. for its stance on Venezuela, and on Tuesday, January 29th, described the latest sanctions against Maduro's government as illegitimate. And a Russian spokesman said the new U.S. measures blocking all U.S. revenue from Venezuela's national oil company were the latest example of Washington using economic sanctions to further U.S. commercial interests. Also, China's foreign policy issued similar remarks on U.S. sanctions against Venezuela. Meanwhile, um, Juan Guaido has called for walkouts uh, to happen today, uh, for protests uh, to happen today. Also, on Tuesday, January 29th, uh, Venezuela's Supreme Court barred uh, Guaido from leaving Venezuela and ordered a freeze on his financial uh, assets. And uh, also, um, Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's president, uh, during an interview with a Russian news agency, said that Donald Trump, quote, gave the order to kill me, adding that he told the Colombian government the Colombian mafia will kill me and also says if anything happens to him, um, they should be held accountable. Meanwhile, the heads of government of the Caribbean community known as CARICOM, including the prime minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley, met by video conference on Thursday on the latest developments in the situation in the Bolivarian Republic. Public of Venezuela and issued a statement. We're going to find out more about that uh, from our guest. But we are going to be going uh, to a clip now from CNBC. Uh, let's go to that uh, clip. And we're also going to hear um, about um, Nicolas Maduro saying, hands off Venezuela. He's criticized other administrations, and yet here we are with Venezuela where they are tacitly encouraging regime change. So what's really going on here? Well, the administration would say on its behalf two things. One, it's not just the administration by itself saying, you know what, we think there ought to be regime change in Venezuela. There's a process that's gone on there. The National Assembly is a representative political institution in Venezuela. Many regard it, that is to say many on the outside, regard it as the last remaining democratic institution in the country, has chosen Juan Guaido. Mm -hmm. And other countries have endorsed the administration's effort to recognize Juan Guaido as the legitimate leader of Venezuela and no longer regard Nicolas Maduro and those who still support him as legitimate. The Organization of American States, many other countries, significant European allies have said there's about an eight-day timeline for the Maduro regime to call for new elections to begin a transfer of power that is peaceful there. So it is within this conversation worth noting that it's not just one U.S. administration saying something needs to change in Venezuela. Point two, and along the lines of the question you just asked, Don, I put it to the National Security Advisor. What is the U.S. security interest here? Well, he said stability, one. Humanitarian crisis, two. And the sense that there is this deeply illegitimate government in a powerful or once powerful and once rich country in the southern hemisphere running rampant, inflicting violence, repression, and bloodshed almost heedlessly. That is something the United States has a vested interest in. And there was also a point in which he said the involvement of Cuba is more than mildly worrisome to this administration. So you take all that together, that's why there's this focus on, on Venezuela. 
I would only say as a sidelight, there might be those in the human rights community and the national security community who say, what about North Korea? Almost all those exact same things are true, plus it has nuclear weapons, and you're going to have another summit with the leader of that country. But that's a sidelight. All righty, and now we're going to go on to hear um, President uh, Nicolas Maduro saying hands off Venezuela and a little bit about the debate that took place last Saturday at the U.N. of Venezuela. Donald Trump hands of Venezuela. De inmediati. All righty, and now we're going to go to the real news on the UN debate. Constitution, but what about if we look at the uh, international law, the charter? Where Where is this based on? Are we simply uh, uh, setting aside interna- uh, international relations based on international law and uh, replacing them with international relations based on force? And- China supports the efforts made by the Venezuelan government to uphold national sovereignty, independence, and stability. The meeting... Uh, which we are being forced to be present is another element of the strategy of the United States uh, uh, to effect regime change in Venezuela. We regret that in this unethical ploy, in its unethical ploys, the United States is involving the Security Council. Colombia has come here to the Security Council to ask the international community to demand that the life and well-being of Juan Guaido is upheld, and not just that he is protected, but also the members of the National Assembly and all those who fight for democracy. And indeed, we have called for the, come to call for the international community's support for all those Venezuelans who are sparing no effort to build a better future. Belgium calls for the restoration of constitutional order in Venezuela. The presidential elections which took place in May of last year were in no way free, fair or credible thus stripping the government of Nicolas Maduro of any democratic legitimacy. The main threat to peace and security in Latin America and the Caribbean is in fact the bullying by the United States and its allies of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, which is a flagrant affront to the popular will of the people of Venezuela and to the institutional framework of this country. I ask the question honestly, if we look back through history, which country has been better after an intervention by the United States of America? Have we not discussed in this very Security Council the serious adverse impact and consequences of situations such as the current uh, situation in Iraq or Syria or in Libya? All righty, there you go. So that took place this past Saturday in the UN. You heard uh, Colombia, of course, making a case for the U.S. position. I would now like to welcome our guest, David Comision, the ambassador to the Caribbean community, uh, CARICOM, uh, representing Barbados, and that is the uh, an organization of the Caribbean uh, governments. He is also active in the Caribbean Pan-African Network, He's an attorney, writer, and political activist. David Comision is the author of the 2013 book, It's the Healing of the Nation, the Case for Reparations in an Era of Recession and Recolonization. He's also the author of Marching Down the Wide Streets of Tomorrow, Emancipation Essays and Speeches. David Comision, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so David Comision, the Caribbean uh, nations have been playing a critical role in pushback against this U.S.-backed attempted coup. But before we get to that, a lot of people may write off um, individual islands, you know, Barbados and, you know, St. Vincent, etc., as small and and not very relevant. But could you just uh, tell us really about the impact of uh, the CARICOM nations when they are put together as a block, especially as it relates to geopolitical politics and also the economy in the Americas, David Comision? Well, CARICOM is a block of 15 nations in the Caribbean. Um, significantly, those nations, almost all of them, have very strong democratic credentials. These are, these are countries that uphold human rights, that 
practice um, democratic politics. In fact, for many years, Barbados was rated as the freest nation in the entire in the entire world. So that is our tradition. We we are not militarily powerful. We are not a threat to anybody militarily or economically. So what we can bring is principle, is commitment to principle and a commitment to speak truth to power. And we, we have seen instances in the past where um, CARICOM has exhibited that kind of, of power and influence. Uh, most famously uh, in 1972 when the four founder nations of CARICOM, um, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, Guyana, and Barbados, um, broke the isolation imposed on the revolutionary um, government of Cuba by the United States of America and the Organization of American States, defied the OAS and recognized Cuba um, diplomatically, established diplomatic and economic relations with Cuba, and, um, and, and led the way, basically, for virtually the, the entire um, Western Hemisphere. And, and so we have demonstrated that um, we, can, we can stand on principle and we can speak truth to power and we can be uh, an agent for progressive change. Right. And uh, so, David, in that last clip uh, that we just heard, uh, you heard uh, the commentator, uh, who I think was from the Brookings Institute, uh, saying that the OAS supports the U.S. position. Not exactly in those words, but that's basically what he meant in his reference to the OAS. Is that true? Or the U.S. position would constitute a breach, a fundamental breach of the charter of the Organization of American States. Uh, the, the, the OAS charter um, um, holds up the principle of the inviolability of the uh, the integrity of national of the national territory of of sovereign nations. Um, so, you know, so that that's 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 totally ridiculous. Um, the point about CARICOM is that you have persons located thousands of miles away from uh, Venezuela taking all kinds of positions. But the countries that, are, that neighbor Venezuela, Venezuela is part of our Caribbean region. If there is um, violence in, in Venezuela, if there is military conflict in Venezuela, the people, the countries that are going to be directly affected are not the United States, are not Canada. They are going to be countries like Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, St. Vincent, Grenada. So, so we are the ones most directly affected, and therefore we have something to say about what is happening um, in Venezuela. The CARICOM heads of government recognize that this is a crisis, that the actions taken by certain powers in recognizing, in purporting to recognize Juan Guaido um, has set this situation on a path towards serious um, civil disturbance and military conflict. And that, and this will have devastating consequences, not only for the people of Venezuela, but for the entire Caribbean region. So, with that in mind, we called an emergency meeting of our prime ministers last Thursday. Uh, we discussed the situation. We we came up with a collective statement on the issue where we emphasize that our guiding principles are those of non-interference and non-intervention in the affairs of sovereign states, respect for sovereignty, adherence to the rule of law, and respect for human rights and democracy. We also made it clear that we are committed to the concept of the Caribbean being a zone of peace, and that everything must be done through dialogue and peaceful means um, to defuse this um, situation in Venezuela. Our heads of government also offered, have offered their good offices to facilitate dialogue among all parties 
to resolve this deepening crisis. And we also determined that we were going to approach the United Nations to ask them to partner with us, partner with CARICOM, in helping to resolve the issue. And so that was on Thursday last week. On Saturday, the CARICOM statement was presented at the meeting of the UN Security Council by Barbados's ambassador to the UN, Elizabeth Thompson. In addition, um, representatives of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Antigua, um, Dominica, and Suriname addressed the Security Council meeting. And then on Monday, a CARICOM delegation comprising Prime Ministers Harris of St. Kitts, Motley of Barbados, and Rowley of Trinidad and Tobago, along with Secretary General of CARICOM, Larocque, um, had a meeting with with the Secretary General of the UN in, in New York and met with representatives of several other relevant countries. So CARICOM has launched a diplomatic initiative that is geared to bring in all of the contending parties to the table so that a process of dialogue um, could take place with a view to diffusing this very, very dangerous situation and, and finding a path towards um, you know, a, a solution that preserves the social order of Venezuela. Yeah, and you know, uh, David Comision, I had I saw a report that the United States had put forward a resolution at the OAS, and that uh, basically they did not get the majority vote. I think it was eighteen or something like that against. I I don't remember exact uh, the exact number, but there there was pushback, and uh, and I imagine that the CARICOM nations uh, played a role in that pushback. Is that right? Okay, what happened on the on the 10th of January, the same day that uh, Nicolas Maduro was being inaugurated as president, the OAS held a session and a resolution was put forward um, stating that um, the, the uh, calling on states not to um, support um, Maduro's inauguration. In other words, to declare that Maduro is not the legitimate um, president of of Venezuela. Yeah. Um, several CARICOM countries voted for that um, a resolution. Several voted against, and the majority abstained. Um, then, on the twenty second or the twenty third, we got this. This striking and surprising declaration by Guaido that he was declaring himself president of Venezuela, and almost immediately the United States recognized him and several of their cohorts in in Latin America, uh, Canada, and, and some of the, the right wing regimes that um, tend to be very anti-Venezuela, Colombia and, and and Brazil, and so forth. And that is what really shook up um, CARICOM, because even those countries that had some difficulty with Maduro, I don't think they rec- <laughs> I don't think they understood that this was leading um, to this attempt to set up a parallel government in and in Venezuela, because once you set up that parallel government, you are now heading for serious military conflict and um, and civil war. So the 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 there was a session of the OAS last week Thursday where the those countries opposed to Venezuela attempted to have a resolution passed um, legitimizing Guaido but they were unable to do it. So no resolution was passed um, um, legitimizing um, Guaido as they wished to happen. And some of the CARICOM countries that had had voted to say that they did not recognize Maduro were clearly not prepared to recognize Guaido because 
how, what would make Guaido president of of Venezuela? Guaido has not been part of any electoral presidential electoral process. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing in the constitution of Venezuela that could lead to a result where Guaido is declared president or interim president of the country. So, so, so yes. So that failed at the OAS last Thursday. And um, and it, you know, now that it has become clear that that vote in the OAS on the 10th of January was actually part of a whole ploy to foist this parallel government on Venezuela, it has caused um, some of our, our our governments that went along with that 10th of January vote to have um, serious reservations about where they were being led. Um, by those who propose that resolution. Right. Well, thank you for that, uh, David. We're going to have to take our station break now. Um, I'm not quite sure if your schedule will allow you to uh, stay with us. After we're going to take our station break, and then uh, Kevin Pina will be joining us, and we'll be talking a little bit about the U.S. regime change playbook as it has played out in Haiti, um, Honduras, and, and Venezuela. Um, so... Um, I don't know if you'll be able to stay on for a few minutes, David, or, or if you have to dash now. I could stay on for a few minutes if you... If okay. You know, if All righty. Thank you. The, the debate. Right. Let, let us go now to our station break, and we'll be right back. All righty, and that is Revolution by the Beatles. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, please like and friend us on Facebook. And we're also on SoundCloud. Just look for Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott and the the tradition of Sojourner Truth. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across the United States and indeed across the world. Today, we're going to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Columbus, Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, today, internationally, on the international front, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. Africa. We are going to have our weekly Earth Minute, and then we're going to return to our ongoing coverage of the U.S.-backed attempted coup in Venezuela. In the wake of promises by Brazil President Bolsonaro to loosen regulations on mining companies, on January 25th, a dam owned by Brazil mining company Vale collapsed in the village of Brumadinho in the state of Minas Gerais. Dozens were killed and hundreds are still missing in the toxic sludge. Vale is the world's largest iron ore mining company. Formerly state-owned, it was privatized in 1997. In 2015, another Vale dam collapsed in Minas Gerais in what became the worst environmental disaster in Brazil's history. The toxic deluge from that dam traveled more than 600 kilometers, affecting millions and destroying a river on which an indigenous tribe depended. There are more than 4,000 dams considered at high risk of damage throughout Brazil, including 200 more mining dams. Meanwhile, Brazil plans to construct 150 new hydroelectric dams in the Amazon, threatening critical jungle biodiversity and entire indigenous peoples. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Ann Peterman from Global Justice Ecology Project. Okay, we're now going to continue our coverage of the uh, ongoing attempted uh, U.S.-backed attempted coup in uh, Venezuela. But what we're going to do now is we're going to discuss a little bit in contrast the U.S. regime change playbook as it has uh, been implemented in Haiti as well as Venezuela. So before we welcome uh, Kevin Pina, um, journalist, and filmmaker, and expert on Haiti, uh, let's we're going to 
hear two clips, one from Randall Robinson on the coup that took place against uh, President Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 2004. Uh, There was an earlier coup, but this is the 2004 coup. And then we'll hear a short piece from The Revolution Will Not Be Televised and the lead up um, in Venezuela to the coup that took place against the late Hugo Chavez there. First, the army that was making the civil war that uh, Powell was trying to avoid was an army that was armed by the United States, an army that was equipped by the United States, an army that was trained by American special forces in the Dominican Republic. And one might safely assume that if we financed it, that if we armed it, that if we equipped it, If we trained it, then we directed it. For we would not have given all of that to any group that could do anything it wanted to do at any time. And what was so clear throughout all of this, that once the rebels, and that's too nice a term for these thugs who had a long string of killings to their name, that once they crossed the border into Haiti in February of 2004, all George Bush had to say, all Colin Powell had to say, all Condoleezza Rice had to say to them was stop. They would have stopped immediately. But they never said that, which means that they approved what they were doing. The Bush administration did this thing in several ways. In 2003, they blocked $146 million in inter-American bank, inter-American development bank loans. Things like clean drinking water and education and health and all of that, blocked all of that. They, they cut the Haitians' budget in half. And then they had their surrogates invaded and then they abducted the president and overthrew the democracy themselves. And they did this out of a close sympathy with the elites who had been begging the Americans to invade, to get rid of Aristide. Venezuela today, violence has a means to an end. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez was forced from office after a controversial three-year term. Following a military coup, Venezuela is apparently under the control of the army. The fate of Chavez himself remains unclear. Chavez's reign was controversial from the start. He was critical of the U.S. and a close friend of Fidel Castro. President Chavez has had a rule that has been controversial and has not met with widespread popular support within Venezuela or within among, among his neighbors and certainly in the United States with President Bush. 
Biden has already led to the end of an oil production strike, leaving the United States hopeful that a new government will help stabilize Venezuela's oil industry, the world's fourth largest exporter. Yeah, and also the world's largest producer of crude oil. So, uh, Kevin uh, Pina, um, that was a, the a clip from the film that recorded the failed coup against President Hugo Chavez. Now, that was U.S. back. Now we see another one underway. Kevin is an independent journalist, filmmaker, and founder of Haiti Information Project. He's also the Haiti special correspondent for Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio's um, Berkeley station. He's known for his reporting that focused on human rights abuses in Haiti following the oust of President Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 2004 and his first uh, documentary on Haiti, Haiti, Our Harvest of Hope, focused on the formation of the Lavalas political movement and the military coup of 1991 against Aristide. So, uh, Kevin Pino, welcome. My pleasure, Margaret. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, okay, so, Kevin Pina, this playbook now, a lot of people think... I thought that this was a, a new twist to the U.S. regime change playbook. Uh, but in speaking with uh, Pierre Leboisier from the Haiti Action Committee, he said, you know what, back, um, you know, this announcing an alternative president was done in Haiti. Uh, tell us what you know about that. Well, it's true. In 2000, there was what was called a parallel government created that was backed by the United States. It was led by Gerard Gorg. It was part of an opposition organization called the Democratic Convergence, which very much had been, if you will, a product of what was called the Democracy Enhancement Project in Haiti, Democracy Promotion Project of the United States Agency for International Development. What they basically did was cobble together and try to cajole the few elements of the so-called opposition in Haiti to Lavalas and Aristide together into a coalition. In, in 2000, they established and called for a parallel government, and they named their own president, who they swore in the same day that Aristide was sworn in in 2000. Right. So that's, you know, similar to uh, Guaido because um, he swore himself in in this particular instance, um, not that long after um, President Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro was was sworn in following an election uh, that he won. So, uh, Kevin, it does seem as though the U.S. tries this stuff in Haiti, and then they go on to try it in other places. But when they try it in Haiti, it certainly doesn't get the publicity, you know, et cetera, um, that when they pull it off in, a, in another country. I mean, right now you could see there's a lot of focus, even in mainstream media, about what's going on in Venezuela, for the most part, also trashing Nicolas Maduro as a dictator. They did the same thing to President Aristide. Well, you know, Guaido represents the first phase of this. And it's entirely possible that coming out of this on the other end, it will not be Juan Guaido, but it will be another phase. They're willing to change those faces as necessary as the strategy unfolds. And, you know, the strategy is internal and external. Externally, it's isolate the government. It's attack its credibility. It's through character assassination. It's through trying to take away its moral authority and its democratic credentials. Internally, the next phase of this, if it follows the Haiti example, will be a period of low-intensity conflict. We'll see that there will be demonstrations of the opposition, and the intent will be to create circumstances where the government must react, where the police must react, and then they will be cast as the victims. And, of course, Venezuela and the military and the police who are trying to manage the situation will be cast as the villains. And that's where you'll see the non-governmental organizations who already are claiming certain Venezuelan human rights organizations to be the official voice and arbiter of what is acceptable as human rights and what are not. And we'll see that those, those attempts by the police to control those demonstrations uh, will be cast as repression. And we'll see that this will be a huge ideological battle in the media. Right. And, you know, Kevin, the 
the blatant to me theft of um, the Venezuelan government resources, the UK blocking over a billion dollars of its money, um, the sanctions announced uh, by the US and uh, not only announcing those sanctions, but to say that that money some way, somehow, we don't know how yet, will be funneled um, to uh, Guaido, the opposition. And we know in the case of Haiti, as in the case of Venezuela, that the US does pour money into uh, fomenting the opposition against uh, President Aristide in, in two attempted coups against President well, we're already, Aristide. We're already hearing that mm-hmm. all of those non-governmental organizations that are funded by the European Union and through the United States Agency for International Development and through those countries that have voiced their support for this U.S. regime change operation, all of those countries now are systematically cutting out any grassroots organizations in Venezuela that are sympathetic to the government and only providing funding to their conduits to foster those opposition groups to the current democratic government. Right, and of course, um, the present government of of Haiti, um, talk about an illegitimate (laughs) president there, uh, backed by the U.S. US, he actually broke with uh, the majority of CARICOM nations and Haiti, along, I think, with uh, Guyana and St. Lucia, uh, supported the U.S. position. Uh, just your final thoughts on, on that and, and lessons that the progressive movement in the U.S. could, could learn from all this. Well, including Venezuela itself, uh, mm-hmm. w- you know, we've, we've told them, many of us who've been observing Haiti have told them that they've been misusing the Petrocarib Fund. Now, the Petrocarib Fund was right. a loan program where the Venezuelan uh, government would give Haiti uh, gas and oil at reduced rates, and the balance was to be spent on development projects. Well, $3 billion of that has gone missing under the current PHTK regime in Haiti. Many of us have been warning them about this, but they continued the program. And I guess they believed that, it, that somehow that would be rewarded, that Haiti would stand as a government in solidarity with them when, and we all knew this was coming, when the U.S. moved for regime change. Well, of course, the PHT government could not be relied upon. They are not consistent players. They are not principled players, unlike many, the majority of CARICOM. And I just want to salute CARICOM historically. After the coup against Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 2004, it was only CARICOM, the African Union, and in Latin America, the only nation was Venezuela that refused to recognize the government of Gerard La Torture that the United States parachuted in to take control of Haiti right. following the ouster of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. So salute to CARICOM. Right. Well, Kevin Pina, um, we're going to be continuing this coverage, and I'll have to say it's difficult to really talk about what's happening in Haiti without looking at what has happened in Venezuela, uh, I mean, in, in Haiti, um, where a lot of progressives in the U.S. ignored it, and many of us said that not protesting the coup against President Aristide in Haiti was part of what uh, made the way for the coup against the democratically elected President Zelaya in Honduras. So we'll see how all of this plays out. Kevin Pina, we hope to have you back very soon. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Okay, we're going to be continuing our co- our coverage on the attempted coup in Venezuela, but right now we're going to be turning to our campaigners for Black Lives. We'd like to thank the um, Black Lives Matter LA, in particular Dr. Melina Abdullah. They partner with them for our weekly ongoing series. And I'd like to welcome Evan Bunch, who's an organizer with Dignity and Power, now based in Los Angeles. Evan, thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, Margaret Prescott. It is a joy to be with you this morning. How are you? Okay. Uh, Very well, thank you. But, you know, Evan, I I had to chuckle. Uh, If not, you would cry when you see that on Tuesday, January 29th, uh, members of the L.A. Police Commission expressed their concern that about the disproportionate number of black drivers being stopped by this elite unit of, of LAPD. Like, the police commission really cares about what's happening. Um, tell us, you know, the position of dignity and power and uh, your concern about this. Tell, tell our listeners what this is all about. Uh, thank you, Margaret. You know, uh, yes, I, I work for Dignity and Power now. Um, yesterday, 
However, I was standing with a multitude of, of organizations with L.A. Can, Pete White, Black Lives Matter, uh, Melina Abdullah, Dr. L.A. Spying, um, Hamid Khan, and Jamie Garcia. And we, and we stood in solidarity around this idea that um, the LAPD just can't throw, you know, these half excuses to what they are and how they are racially profiling black folks in Los Angeles. Um, the LAPD's history of, in L.A. is not one where the LAPD can say, oh, we're stopping um, a disproportionate rate of black drivers. Let's just throw a study at it and just move forward, Right. I think the LAPD knows that this is what that they this is what they do, and they want to create this. And they've invested millions of dollars in this huge PR machine to cover up a lot of their racist and 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 and, and harmful policing practices. But as a uh, as a coalition of folks who um, who work on behalf of not only of not of not only Los Angeles citizens but on behalf of the black community, we are saying stop this continuing narrative of criminalizing and hurting and ultimately killing black folks, right? So, um, Dignity Power Now, our, our whole statement on this is this is a public safety issue, right? No longer should we be hearing these half excuses coming from the LAPD or from Mayor Eric Garcetti, Eric Garcetti or from the Police uh, Commission President Steve Sobrock that rubber stamps everything the LAPD says, right? This is a public the issue because we are not getting answers or solutions from our city government or our local um, police commission and people in the community are asking for we need help right we are being targeted criminalized because we're being targeted and and this is also a economic issue because the more and more black folks get get traffic tickets the more of thousands of dollars get taken away from our homes leaving us also in, in a impoverished state. This leads, This is also a poverty issue, right? So this is a public safety issue. Right, and, and nearly half of the drivers uh, stopped by this unit um, have been black. I mean, and the city is only 9% black. This is a, according to the report there. But listen, all of us who are black, we know very well, not only in, in Los Angeles, but across the country, there is the driving while black. There's even the walking while black. There's the studying right. while black. There's even being on the media while black. You know what I mean, Evan? So um, we, we, we're not shocked and surprised by all of this. So right. what, what are you asking um, the LAPD and the city to do right now? Well, what we're asking, um, I think that what I, I think what folks are um, are really demanding here um, is the stopping of these elite police forces. Right? The LAPD has been granted all types of leeway in what, whatever policing experiments they want to um, um, practice upon the um, the citizens on the citizenry of Los Angeles, even though the LAPD has been under federal consent decrees, they're continually being critiqued for their policing practices. The, the city gives LAPD so much room to practice harmful policing, right? And and, and, and we see this with Operation Laser. We see this with um, um, these um, community safety operations centers where the LAPD can literally set up intelligence spots and, and what is called hot spots where they can collect data upon you even though they haven't suspected you of committing a crime, right? So there goes your fourth, your fourth amendment right. They can, they can presume you guilty, create a, na- a, a narrative about you, and, um, and, and create a criminal, criminalizing narrative about you so that when you do, per se, commit some kind of low-level offense, they have all this data about you and then further criminalize and sentence you for a long time inside of jail or uh, prison. So we have to we have to end to these secretive policing practices to Operation Laser, to community safety operations centers. LAPD should not have drones, right? They should not be given military warfare equipment to practice upon um, its LA citizenry. What kind of crap is this, right? Who is giving LAPD the authority to have this type of this type of like power? And so if, if the LAPD can have this type of extraordinary military power, I mean. What else can they not have, right? And and, yeah. and 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 in a time where the LAPD has 
um, it's not being it has not seen uh, no type of accountability from 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 the DA Jackie Jackie Lacey. Um, I see no kind of accountability from the LAPD Police Commission. This is this is a horrendous time to be a citizen of, of Los Angeles because the LAPD can pretty much do whatever it wants upon its LA citizenry. Right, and and Evan uh, um, Bunch also tell us we know that um, the lead organizer with Black Lives Matter LA, Dr. Melina Abdullah, that she has now been charged by the city, and right. that uh, when does she go in? Uh, uh, when does the case come up again in court? Um, because we want to keep our listeners apprised of all this. That is that is a really good question. Um, I have to look back at my notes. I believe it's I believe it's February fifth. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll get that and we'll post it also you. on our social media. But you know, Evan, the issues that you have raised our listeners, whether they be in Atlanta, in New York City, in Washington D.C., in Minneapolis, wherever they are across the country, um, are experiencing uh, this kind of thing of being pulled over. Uh, by the law enforcement uh, simply for being black. So um, thank you for the the work you all are doing with Dignity and Power Now and for pushback against uh, all of this. And we also want to thank Black Lives Matter LA for their help with this segment. Evan, we hope to hear again from you soon. You take care of yourself now. (laughs) You're an endangered species, Evan. (laughs) Yes, that's what I always for, tell my my black brothers. <laughs> yes, yes, and thank you for lifting up uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah's case. That is going to be extremely important. In All right, on next week. Thank you. Okay, great. We're out of time. Uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer today, Mr. T. Teddy Robinson, our assistant producer Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one eight hundred seven three five zero two three zero or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war. It's a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation. Until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. Miss a war that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race. This a war that until that day. The dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, rule of international morality will remaining but a fleeting illusion to be pursued but never attained. Now The time is 6.57. You are tuning in to KBOO Portland. Up next is Hard Knock Radio. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the Real Music Film Festival through February 16th at the Whitfield Auditorium, 1219 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. On Thursday, January 31st, the Real Music Festival will screen the documentary Solo, The Evolution of the One Man Band. This film investigates the history and present-day atmosphere of this special art form. Again, that's the Real Music Film Festival showing Solo, The Evolution of the One Man Band on Thursday, January 31st at 7 p.m. at the Witzel Auditorium, 1219 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events.
You are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 4 p.m. to Heart Knock here on the Pacifica Network. Up next on the program, we hear from author Malik Wade about his book, Pressure from FBI Fugitive to Freedom. And later on, Ren stops by from True School to present the listening community of KPFA with the plug. All this and more ahead, so keep the lock. Hi, Max Pringle with these headlines. Much of the Midwest was in a deep freeze today. The unusually cold weather closed schools and businesses and strained infrastructure across the Rust Belt with some of the lowest temperatures in a generation. Chicago dropped to a low of around minus 23, slightly above the city's lowest ever reading of minus 27 from January of 1985. Milwaukee had similar conditions. Minneapolis recorded minus 27. Sioux Falls, South Dakota saw minus 25. Wind chills reportedly made it feel like minus 50 or worse. The Postal Service took the radio.